because I because I, I love applause, let's applaud for uh, Sensei Glenn and and also the Center for Pragmatic Buddhism, and then also for uh, we'll we'll give a little bit of applause for Kim and all of the leadership team. At, uh, Thank you, Kim. <laughs> okay, very good. Well. Um, I'm hoping that you can hear me okay. Is, is it all right? If you have difficulty hearing me, uh, feel free to take a moment or so to move a little closer. Uh, this is about the best I can do with this voice. Uh, and so, um, I, but I want to be sure everybody can see and hear. So thank you. Um, the, this morning, I'm going to give a, a short, I hope, you know, <laughs> We have we have a uh, we have a couple of directors in the room, uh, past and present, and so they know I tend to go on. Uh, but uh, but I'll try to give a, a short talk this morning, and then uh, open things up for questions. So if questions develop for you uh, during the presentation, if you could uh, hold that thought for a minute or two, I'll pause from time to time and ask for questions. We are recording uh, this morning at the request of one of our Dharma friends who lives in. Um, in Washington State, she sent me an email this week and said, will you be recording the Dharma talk? And I said, um, yeah. So, uh, uh, so thanks to Ron for bringing the equipment for us this morning. So, um, uh, so what I'm going to do at the beginning here is um, I'm going to uh, say a short prayer. And it's a prayer with which you may already be familiar. It's the four-line refuge prayer from the Chenrezig sadhana that we just did. Uh, I'll be reciting it once in the Tibetan language as a way of, um, to, to paraphrase, lifting us up uh, for, the, uh, for the talk that's to follow. The, word, the meaning of the words is, uh, from now until enlightenment is reached, I take refuge in the Buddha as the teacher, the Dharma as the path, and the Sangha as the community. And uh, through the uh, practice of the six perfect virtues, May I and all beings attain Buddhahood. So that's the, um, that's the meaning of the prayer that I'm going to be reciting. Now, if this is a prayer with which you are familiar, feel free to join in. If it's a prayer with which you are unfamiliar, uh, please join in uh, in your heart and in your mind, thinking that you dedicate this session to the benefit of all sentient beings. Okay, thank you. Um, to begin with, I'd like to say hi to everybody who's come today and to thank you for uh, spending part of your morning with us. Uh, and also to thank uh, uh, the uh, folks who lit our way this morning. Uh, I think they've just left the room, and that's uh, Frank and, uh, and uh, Roberta for no, putting out the... Oh, they're here? Okay, great. Putting out the luminaria this morning. Oh, I see you now. Uh, putting out the luminaria this morning and everything else, and also to Julene and the whole shrine team uh, for putting the shrine together, and then also uh, to Kim uh, for bringing the food and, and Bill for helping us set up. Now... Uh, because this is uh, the New Year's Day of the Western calendar, a lot of people think about beginnings on a day like today. And a lot of people uh, think about the kind of year that they have had and the kind of year that they want to have. And uh, those uh, thoughts will sometimes be accompanied by two things, hope and fear. We have hope that we're going to accomplish something good this year, 
and fear that it might not come to pass. And so uh, what I want to talk about a little bit this morning is about this process of working toward a goal while managing our hope and our fear. And um, uh, I think it's of interest uh, to see if anybody uh, here would like to uh, say to us what your Dharma hope is for the year. Does anybody have a Dharma hope they would like to share this morning? To start with, yes. I would like to become better at practicing the Dharma. You'd like to become better at practicing the Dharma. More knowledgeable about sure. Buddhism. Oh, got it. Okay, yeah, okay, knowledgeable. Right. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have a Dharma hope for the year? Hope for no tender retreat. Okay. <laughs> okay. The person is going to attend a retreat. I think I heard the uh, the parenthetical phrase. Hopefully, the nyungne. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. The enlightenment and wisdom and compassion. Sorry, but this is political. Oh, <laughs> or <yeah>. the GOP. <laughs> now I think that we can all hope for wisdom and compassion for all of the people who lead our government regardless of their party because I have to tell you uh, we have uh, so many examples through the years through the decades of people who didn't quite go the right way with wisdom and compassion so thank you for that and we'll keep that in in mind anybody else have a a goal for uh, themselves for dharma this year because I got room for like one more here Well, in that case, I'll share mine. Oh, I'll share mine. Uh, uh, mine is uh, that I would like to be more patient this year. Because, uh, uh, because yeah, because um, I remember uh, back when uh, Kempo Carter Rinpoche uh, requested that I start teaching, the way he put it was, uh, now that you have finished retreat, I would like for you to go to, back to Columbus and to help the Dharma Center there, and when you have time to travel and teach. And so that's what I've been doing for about 20 years. Not too long after that, we had a discussion, Kemper Bache and I, in which he gave me a list of all the things he wanted me to teach. And, uh, and we had, he gave me a little bit of fatherly advice. He said, out of nowhere, for no apparent reason, he said, you know what your problem is? <laughs> Just, the one. Just the one, you know. You know what your problem is? He said, your problem is that when people say things that appear to go against the Dharma, you can't be patient with that. You lose your patience. So he said, your job is to be patient with everyone and everything. And I'm like, oh, Rinpoche, I don't think I can. (laughs) So that is why uh, every year I renew. (laughs) I renew my pledge to try to be more patient. It is um, a, I think it's going to be a lifetime journey. Uh, So uh, I appreciate all of these um, uh, Dharma uh, wishes that people have uh, given us this morning to be more knowledgeable about Dharma, to do some serious practice and retreat, uh, to uh, be patient with and for the enlightenment of uh, all those who are in government, and then uh, for me to be more patient. I think someone wants to add something in the back. Uh, do you have a, a personal um, Dharma wish? Yeah, to achieve more goals. To achieve what? More goals. More goals. Okay, very good. I think that's a what we might call a all-encompassing, so I think that's really good. Okay, so when we talk about uh, goals and wishes and all of these sorts of things, they come from, these goals and wishes come from the deepest part of ourselves, a part that knows something that perhaps another part of us does not know. And I'll tell you why. We, when we make a positive aspiration for anything, we are saying, in effect, that we believe in our own goodness and our own potential for goodness. 
which is really important because some people say to me, I don't feel that I have the potential for goodness. I don't feel that I have a lot of potential. I feel that I have a lot of flaws and I make a lot of mistakes and I tend to hold on to my flaws and I tend to hold on to my mistakes and so forth. And so when people say this to me, I try to encourage them to make positive aspirations. Um, when I spoke to Kempo Carter Rinpoche about working with uh, patients in hospitals as a Buddhist chaplain, I said, well, what do I do if I meet a person who does not have any faith tradition? They're not Christian, they're not Jewish, they're not Buddhist. What do I do? And he said, I would like for you to encourage them to make positive aspirations for their family. Because everybody has some kind of family, whether they are living or deceased, and that they can then make aspirations positively for themselves or their family and so forth. And so in that way, they can honor their uh, loved ones and family and put their mind in a positive direction, even though they may not be praying to a higher power or any other type of figure, religious figure. And I have found that to be such a great idea. It's a good idea even for Buddhists. Because uh, as Buddhists, we have a, a number of basic beliefs. Uh, and one of those basic beliefs is in our own inner goodness. And so all of our positive aspirations come from our belief in and confidence in our own potential for goodness. Campbell Carter Rinpoche once said, we all have a, a spark. The, the translator used that word, a spark of goodness within us that, uh, that gives us the potential for well-being and wisdom and compassion beyond what we can imagine now. And this spark of goodness is sometimes called Buddha nature. And if we look at the definitions for Buddha nature that we see in texts, it basically comes down to this. We have a mind, and that mind has as its basic nature limitlessness. Our mind is basically without limit. Some Buddhist texts and translators use the word emptiness. Uh, His Eminence Tai Sita Rinpoche, uh, the great meditation master who lives in India and is the, uh, the teacher of the 17th Karmapa, he said that he has studied English as a second language and he's actually quite good. His English is excellent. And he said, I have a quarrel with the word emptiness. He said, uh, because for many people who live in America, the word empty is equivalent to zero or nothingness or nihilism. So he said, I'm going to try a different word and see if it helps. He's an ex- he says, I'm going to experiment with the English language and see if my experiment helps people to understand what I mean when I talk about the mind being limitless. He said, it is empty of limitation. The mind is empty of limitation, but it is without limit. And then he went on to explain. He said, the mind has no color. The mind has no shape. The mind has no beginning. The mind has no end. It was never created anywhere and will not be destroyed. And so therefore, mind is truly without limit. And being limitless, it is full of potential. Because if it didn't, it wouldn't be truly limitless if it didn't have this potential. But it also is not just limitless, it's also luminous. Uh, the, the, the Buddhist texts on the mind say the mind is not uh, an empty nothing. There's dynamism. It knows itself. The mind can actually know and experience itself. We know what we are thinking. We know what we are feeling. And we know that we know. I remember uh, when the great young meditation master, Mingyur Rinpoche, was asked about the definition of the Buddhist 
uh, phrase awareness. They said, oh, Mitch you're a great master. Tell us what is mind's awareness. And then he said, oh, awareness, that's easy. Awareness, easy. He said, do you see my hand? And he passed his hand in front of us and we're like, mm-hmm. And then he said, do you hear the snapping of my fingers? And I said, uh-huh. And he said, that's it. <laughs> You're aware of what you see. You're aware of what you hear. And you are aware of awareness. And so what this means is that our mind, while having no limit, is not a nothing. It's dynamic, and it can know. So the way I like to say it is the mind is not a material thing, not atoms, not molecules, none of that. The mind is not a thing, but it's not nothing, because it knows and experiences. Now you may say, well, how, how does this translate into our uh, hopes and wishes coming true? How does this translate into our positive aspiration? Well, because the mind is full of all potential, because it has the potential to be and experience anything, then it has the potential for great goodness. It has the potential for great goodness. It has the potential to both in the relative world be a source of virtue and goodness, and should we so choose, we could also create a great deal of negativity. So it is up to us to choose how we are to use this incredible power. And so uh, this mind that can know itself is the source of all of our positive aspirations. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we have this mind that can wake up and become Buddha. This is what the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, did. The historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, entered into uh, many years of meditation. And, uh, and after his many years of meditation, he came to understand and see and experience his mind as it was, without any confusion or ignorance or obscuration. And this experience is called Buddhahood. And all of us have this potential. There is not a single one among us who does not possess this potential. Even the dust mites in the carpet have the potential, maybe not this lifetime, guys, <laughs> but in a future lifetime to become Buddha. And so this is why the Buddhists have this respect and uh, honor for all living things, because they all possess this wonderful mind that can, at some point in the future, become Buddha. So that's why we can make aspirations, because we have Buddha nature. We can make these aspirations. And because we have Buddha nature, we can, as... Uh, one Western psychologist once said to me, we can get out of our own way to make them happen. So what are the obstacles that arise for our aspirations? Remember I said there's hope and there's fear. <laughs> the hope is that we will get to know our minds better, get to practice more, get to understand the Dharma teachings more, get to do retreat, get to do all of these things that we need to do to uncover our Buddha nature. We, that's our hope. But we can also have a negative form of hope. And I think I need to talk about this for just a second because this negative form of hope can get in the way of our aspiration. I, I suffer from this so I can start a little support group meeting <laughs> right now. By, with these words, hi, my name is Kathy, and I'm a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hi, Kathy. Oh, yeah. Hi, Kathy, right. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and I think this is what we might say is the, um, the dark side of hope, is uh, perfectionism and expectation. Um, uh, some people translate um, this, this sort of negative hope using the same word, hope. I don't like to do that because I think it's a little confusing for people. So instead of saying hope and fear, I prefer to say expectation and anxiety. We expect 
that certain things will happen, and we are anxious and afraid that they won't happen. And so expectation means I expect myself to be perfect at all times, and to always have perfect conditions, and always have perfect companionship, and always have perfect everything, everything, everything. But as my as my good friend, uh, the uh, meditation instructor you know as Eric Weinberg, as he likes to say, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And so, uh, why is this so? Because in expectation, we are using something that the Buddha looked at as being an obstacle. We're actually using an obstacle to try to carry out something that's dharmic, a dharmic obstacle in order to carry out a dharmic thing. Let me explain. I want to be perfect. There's something funny about that sentence from a dharmic point of view. Does anybody know what it is? I want to be perfect. What's what's funny about that sentence? I. Yeah, I. <laughs> I. So the idea is that when we identify with uh, this uh, experience that the Buddha called self or ego, when we identify with this experience of self or ego, we can create expectation about what this ego or self will accomplish. Those of you who have read Chogyam Trungpa's uh, landmark book, uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, will know that he liked to tease his students about spiritual materialism, meaning that they have taken their own selfish goals from the world of daily work and transplanted them to Dharma. And they're, by the way, they're not going to work for you in Dharma, just as they didn't work for you in your everyday life. And so, uh, because if you go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, the original teaching, the first iteration, Buddhism 1.0, he talked about the Four Noble Truths. Suffering's part of life, suffering has a cause, suffering has a solution, and there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. Suffering's part of life, okay, we kind of get that, although maybe not really, because maybe we think suffering's a part of these other people's lives, but not ours, <laughs> but that's another matter. We'll, we'll take that up in the next one. In uh, the uh, second noble truth, there's suffering has a cause. Uh, the cause of suffering can be uh, said to be desire. I've heard that one a lot. I like to use the word fixation. I love the word fixation because it implies a certain willfulness, an identification with an entity we call me or I, and such an identification with it that we think that me or I is actually sort of important and may actually be more important than the other me's and I's in a situation. My goal is more important than other people's goal. My comfort is more important than other people's comfort and so forth. When we grasp and fixate on the idea of me or I, we put a barrier between ourselves and others, but also between ourselves and ourselves, our Buddha nature. We put a, a block between ourselves and our Buddha nature. We kind of imagine that I am not so good. Uh, or as uh, one of my friends says, uh, some people, their egotism shows as the phrase, I am the best. But for other people, their egotism shows as, I am the best at being the worst. <laughs> you know? And so this is what the Buddha is talking about in the Second Noble Truth, that grasping at a self-concept is like, a, you could call it the original mistake of confusion. Experiencing mind and its vastness and luminosity and saying, hmm, must be somebody there. That must be me. All of these experiences I'm having must be attached to me. This is I, this is me. As Sitra Rinpoche says, we take this vast, huge mind that is luminous and limitless, and he says, then we squeeze down to the smallest possible package <laughs> of grasping and fixation, we call it me or I. And so the, the Buddha said that this is kind of a problem. We need to work with this. And this uh, problem is the source of our perfectionism. 
this is the source of it, is this I am practicing Dharma. Have you seen the YouTube video of, uh, of Minja Rinpoche pretending to be the impatient meditator? He sits on his cushion with a scowl on his face and he says, don't bug me. I'm meditating. I'm in peace. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the idea here is that by using his acting ability, his natural comedic and acting ability, he's trying to give us a point that there is really no such thing as a perfect meditation. <laughs> there is uh, only the practice of meditation, which implies placing our attention on a technique for as long as it will naturally stay there, and then when our attention wanders, gently bringing it back over and over and over again, reestablishing our attention over and over and over again. That's why they call it the practice of meditation. They don't call it the perfection of meditation, they call it the practice of meditation. And if we place fixation, fixated ideas like, I have to have an hour to meditate or I can't meditate at all, that's um, putting a block that's built on a self-concept. I am this kind of meditator. But then but, but what we have to do is we have to be softer and gentler with ourselves than that. We have to recognize that we're students, we're learning. We're becoming Buddhists. We're not there yet. And as part of our becoming Buddhists, then we can be gentle with ourselves and gentle with others. And that gentility, by its very nature, is the gentility of letting go of fixation and letting go of concepts. If we can let go of fixation and concepts while we're sitting on our meditation seat, even the fixation and concept, I am going to be this kind of meditator. I will have no thoughts. It's not going to work. What we have to do is we have to be open to our experience. And we have to use the techniques to help us come back again and again. So uh, this second noble truth, the, the truth of the cause of suffering, being this clinging and fixation, you can see how, as Pema Chodron says, if something hurts so much, it's because I'm holding on so tight. And so naturally, the third noble truth follows instantly from that. If fixation and grasping is the problem, the solution is to let it go. And the fourth noble truth is the method for letting go. The Eightfold Noble Path is a series of actions and intentions that help us to let go. You can brief them down into the four statements. Do no harm. Practice virtue, tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So if we want to practice without this negative form of hope, or if we want to practice without selfish expectation or perfectionism, we have to do our best to do no harm to ourselves by expecting too much. And not to do harm to ourselves by expecting too little. We have to try to get to the middle. Middle is hard. Extremes are easy, but middle is hard. And so what we have to do is we have to gradually, gently keep coming back to the middle over and over again when we feel ourselves getting out, out there. Before I went on three-year retreat, I was having problems with my body because I had back pain. And I went to a, a doctor to talk about my back pain. And, uh, and, I, and they said, uh, well, you know, I noticed something, and that's that you have your shoulders up all the time. You know, you'd have a lot less back pain if you just put them down from time to time. And so that became my exercise from the doctor. Just when they're up, put them down. When they're up, put them down. And I did that over and over again. It felt really silly, but it really worked. And so we can do the same when we're practicing the Dharma. When we feel that we're grasping too tightly, we can begin to let that uh, grasping loosen just a little bit. And the, whenever we see it and are aware of our grasping and our fixation and our perfectionism, we have to find a way to say, let it go. We have to find a way to look at the Buddha and look toward the Buddha and let it go. Because if we see the Buddha, the Buddha is sitting in equipoise. That's the the meaning of the left hand sitting in the lap is equipoise, equanimity. Uh, no 
expectation, no anxiety. He's right in the middle, equanimity. And so this is what we have to practice toward ourselves, is a sense of equanimity. Almost as though we were a loving grandparent watching their grandchild take their first steps and fall down, and then get up, and then fall down. Always hoping and always urging with this love, this gentle love toward oneself, which for us is a necessary move to the middle. Because sometimes we're too harsh with ourselves, and sometimes we're too... We're too laissez-faire. We're too, uh, uh, what is it, uh, not paying attention. Let it, you know, uh, permissive. We'll use that. So what we have to do is when we see that we're being too permissive, we have to tighten up a bit. And when we see we're being overly perfectionistic, we have to back up a little. And this is how we get out of our own way, in a way, in order to make those aspirations for positive things come to pass. And so life is a practice of going too far one way and then going too far the other way and then keep continuously working toward the middle. And that continuously working toward the middle is an expression of our Buddha nature. It's an expression of our Buddha nature. Kempelkart Rinpoche once said, you know what brings people into a Dharma center? Their inner wisdom is pushing them. (laughs) Their inner wisdom is pushing them to the Dharma center. And then when they get there, all of their hopes and all of their fears begin to blossom. (laughs) And then they learn methods and techniques that help them work with and manage their hopes and fears, their expectations, their anxieties. They learn all these methods of letting it go and coming back and letting go and coming back and always having faith and confidence in their Buddha nature. Now, some people may say, how can I have faith and confidence in my Buddha nature if I can't see it? This is the function of your sangha. This is the function of your teachers and your sangha. Your teachers remind you, hey, you have Buddha nature. And they, they have confidence in you and help you have confidence in yourself. And your Dharma friends, they'll encourage you also. They'll say, now take it easy. Or easy does it, or what other ty- whatever types of language works for them to help people be easy and to keep us encouraged. I like to say that the Sangha is a good group because it can be very harmonious, and when one person sneezes, the other person has a tissue. So the idea here is that the Sangha, as a support system, helps to hold us up and help us manage our expectation and anxiety from the outside. And our teachers are especially good. I've told the story before about a gentleman who had a a very serious illness and became very downhearted during his illness. And he said to me, I think I'm losing faith that I have Buddha nature. It's just so hard to go through this illness. I think I'm losing faith. And I said, well, uh, do you have a a copy of uh, Shanti Deva's guide to the bodhisattva's way of life and he said well no I said don't worry I'll send you one your assignment is to read chapter 1 chapter 2 chapter 3 and chapter 10 out loud when you feel up to it don't read it all at once just read a few verses out loud and then then do some quiet sitting meditation and he said okay and then after a month or two I said how's it going and he said I get it (laughs) <laughs> I get it. Because chapter one is talking about the, the he, it's his praise, it's Shantideva's praise, 8th century praise, for the, for the transformative power of bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. Bodhi means um, awakening and chitta means mind. So the mind of awakening, the mind that wants to awaken from the sleep of ignorance, the mind that wants to awaken from the expectation and anxiety that prevents us from seeing our true nature. And so that's the first chapter. It's all about how wonderful bodhicitta is. It says it's an elixir that abolishes death. I mean, it's powerful because it brings about buddhahood. Practicing love and compassion for oneself, love and compassion toward others, understanding the view of emptiness and wisdom. These two types of bodhicitta, relative and ultimate, 
by practicing this over and over again, we are uh, we're shown the goal over and over and over again, and so that we can have the strength to move forward through our expectation and our anxiety. We can manage those two things. Chapter two is where we confess all of our faults. Uh, yes, we actually do have them. <laughs> uh, they are only uh, true in the relative sense, but they are there, and they can mislead us. And so in chapter two, we acknowledge who we have been and who we are. And, uh, and by acknowledging our faults, uh, as one poet said, by acknowledging their faults, we begin to sail with their wind. You know, the idea is that uh, acknowledging our faults encourages us to go farther and to be better. And then we take, in the third chapter, we take the bodhisattva commitment, making the commitment to uh, be of benefit to ourselves and others from now until the end of time, until Buddhahood is reached. And chapter 10 reminds us, bless you, of the, um, of the power that bodhicitta can have when it is fully perfected. It says things like, "May through the merit of my practicing bodhicitta, through the merit of my talking about bodhicitta, may people actually be heal- healed of illness. May they be healed. May the blind see forms. May the deaf hear sounds. And, and it also says... Things like may groups of people live in harmony with one another. And so the idea here is that through the aspiration, through the aspiration, we can see how bodhicitta uh, comes to fruition. In fact, one of my favorite parts in chapter 10 involves uh, the appearance of bodhisattvas, Manjushri and Chenrezig and so forth, in hell. It's like a visionary experience that Shantideva had of seeing these bodhisattvas appearing in the worst place in our universe, in all hellish existences. And it imagines them scooping them up and freeing them from hell. And so the idea here is that by practicing bodhicitta, the ultimate result is that we can help to lift people up out of uh, pain and suffering. We have the power to do that. In this chapter, more than any of the others, was what the young man said helped him to have faith that he had a Buddha nature that could come to fruition and that he could become like that. So we begin this year with hopes, and we begin this year with aspirations, and we acknowledge that we have obstacles to those hopes and aspirations that are expectation and perfectionism and anxiety. And so what we have to commit ourselves to do is to, when we see ourselves becoming too extreme, too perfectionistic, or too permissive, we have to bring ourselves back toward the middle. When we're uh, setting our goals for our daily meditation, we'll keep them simple and doable. I talked to a great Lama once, and he said sometimes people, through their over ambition, which is flavored by self fixation, sorry. Uh, but in their hopeful uh, thing, they will set a goal for themselves that is unrealistic. And then when they disappoint themselves by not meeting that goal, they become very discouraged. Mm-hmm. So the Lama said the important thing is to help them set their expectations in a way that is doable for them, that is manageable and doable for them. So if you have the wish to go on a retreat, then you start with a short one rather than say, I must do a long one. <laughs> and if you are uh, going to learn about the Dharma, you won't try to learn all of the Dharma in one year. You'll take one or two texts and say, I'm going to really focus on one or two texts. I've got a couple of recommendations. <laughs> uh, Trung- my, my number one recommendation, if you want to understand Dharma, is... Um, there's a popular text and then a traditional text. The popular text is Kempo Carter and Bache's book, A Dharma Paths, which contains the whole Mahayana path in it. The other one, uh, that's the more popular one, but the sort of more traditional one is Trangu Rinpoche, T-H-R-A-N-G-U, Trangu Rinpoche wrote a commentary on the jewel ornament of liberation, which is the, the basic, here is Buddhism in a nutshell, book of the Karmakaju tradition. 
if you try to read Gampopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, the one written by Gampopa, it's going to be a little bit of a slog. It won't be easy. But if you read Trombermache's commentary, so easy to understand. So you take a, an easy goal like that and, and work with that. And maybe also work with a teacher to help guide your reading and answer your questions. What I tell people to do is write questions out as you're reading or dictate them to your phone or whatever. And then when you see a teacher, ask all of your questions. And that way, your knowledge will grow. Kemper Bache said, asking questions is the best way for your knowledge to grow. Mm -hmm. Not knowing things is the best way for your knowledge to grow. Because he says, uh, when you teach the Dharma, he said to me, if you say to somebody, if somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, he said, the three most powerful words are, I don't know. And then you promise to look it up and then show them later. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I would say that... Um, if, uh, and, and for the person who said they, they need to uh, realize more goals for the year, then what they can do is make a list of their goals and then make a list of what goals are most important. They have a list of all the goals first, then the ones that are most important, and then the ones that are most important, the little sub-steps that are needed to get them to those goals. And that way it'll be organized if nothing else. And then you'll maybe get some realism as you go through the list. And then uh, I, uh, for uh, patience, all I can do is just keep putting my shoulders down and keep remembering that my way of looking at the world is not the only way of looking at the world. And that other people, just because they say things that are sort of, because that was what Rinpoche said, you know what your problem is. When people say things that are against the Dharma, you get angry. You have to not do that. So I have to just keep remembering that it's not my job. It's not my job to somehow get a sword and defend Buddhism. It is not my job. <laughs> my job is to practice the Dharma. And so if I practice it and practice that patience... That is actually going to do more for the person, even if they continue to disagree with me and not like me. That will do more. If I practice the Dharma and practice patience, that will do more for them. Because, you know, in Buddhism, a lot of it is about intention. In the Mahayana, it's all intention and motivation. And so if you have intention and motivation and you, and you make mistakes, this is, this is according to the teachings of Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi, if you have the pure bodhisattva motivation and you still make mistakes, everything will still turn out all right in the end, which is great. But you also have to acknowledge the mistakes. Oh, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in terms of helping the, the people in government, all we can do is continue to, um, uh, to, be, uh, to be encouraging of the message that I saw on that T-shirt this morning. It says... We rise by lifting others. And we just have to keep them, we have to stay on message and continue to put that message out over and over and over again. And also encourage people to moderate their tone and their language. Mm -hmm. And as they told us on the playground, stop calling people names. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sometimes those things we learned in kindergarten were important. So uh, I went way over my time, uh, but we have a few minutes. Uh, so what I'm wondering is if you have questions or comments or more aspirations or whatever. Yes? What were the chapters in the... Uh, one, in the, uh, the questioner is asking which chapters in, Bodhi, in the Bodhicharya Avatara or, in English, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, what chapters are good to read out loud? I have people read it out loud because it kind of resonates a little bit. Uh, it's one, two, three, and ten. Now, ten is the, uh, the dedication of merit. And I always get choked up when I read about Chenrezy and Manjushri appearing in hell. That just chokes me up. Because, I mean, the idea that, that the awakened bodhisattva is so powerful that they can connect to beings in the lowest states and help bring them out. It's just, it's just beyond me. Yes? I have been taught to never pray for patience, but you're asking for, um, I just meant for, you're not asking for patience, you're asking to be able to become patient. 
Or... Yeah, here's how I'm relating to it. Uh, here's how I'm relating to the, the quality of patients. We can read about patients as a virtue in Dharma Paths because there's a whole like chapter on the six perfect virtues and patience is the third one. After generosity and ethics. Interesting, right? Generosity is first for a reason because it's giving up. It's letting go. And if you give up and let go, then ethics is very easy where you don't hurt others and that you help them instead. And patience is really, in some ways, the fruition of proper generosity and proper ethics. Because if you are generous with your time and your presence, you won't be impatient. And if you have ethics and don't harm others or don't feel punitive toward others, then patience is very easy. You can let them say what they're going to say, and then you give your response. So what my uh, aspiration is, is to be able to practice, my aspiration is to be able to practice those three virtues as best I can. Generosity, with my time, and without being angry, to uh, be ethical in my conduct toward others and so forth. Because anybody who has, um, uh, has seen me be tough with somebody, I don't like it. I just want you to know, if, I, you've, if I've ever been tough with you, I apologize, because it's, it's just not the best way to go. People like Kimball Carter Rinpoche can be tough with people because, I mean, you know, he's on the, on the boomies, right? He's on the Bodhisattva path. But people like me, you know, we're not there yet. So that's, that's I think, would be my number one flaw, is that I'm just not patient. So did that explain? Mm -hmm. and, and in questioning about whether you should pray for patience, you know, in Buddhist, in Buddhist prayer, we're basically asking the Buddha to inspire us. And the Buddha said, when you think of me, I'm there with you, which because he's enlightened is possible. And so we, we, when we're praying to the Buddha, we're not saying, hey, Buddha, give me this, because that's not what it's about. The Buddha is not going to, like, open a bag full of patience and, and, and give you some. But interestingly enough, by evoking him, invoking his presence, that part of you that is the Buddha is present really clearly for you. And that potential is starting to wake up in you. So, yeah. Other things to talk about. Yes? Um, last night at a party, got into a conversation about electronic devices and children. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. thinking about that during your talk for some reason. Oh, sure. And I, the question is how do electronic devices and their applications uh, help our advancement on the spiritual path? Yeah, you know, um, I'm not an expert on this, uh, but what I, what I can do when, when I talk about inventions of all kinds, not necessarily specifically electronic ones, is to quote His Holiness the Dalai Lama who said innovation, in general, is probably neither good nor bad, but it depends on the motivation we bring to it. So if you have an electronic device, and you let it be your servant rather than your master, then you're probably in better shape. And this quotation comes directly from the 17th Karmapa, who said that frequently what happens is that we start with a device being our servant. It helps keep us on time, it helps us make phone calls, it helps us to answer questions, but then it can become our master. As lots of the studies are now finding, that, the, that a lot of the people who develop websites and applications for electronic devices do so in order to make the use of them addictive, so that you won't put it down and that you will see the advertising that the sponsors want you to see and so forth. So the consumption of electronics and media and so forth is something we have to, at our deepest level, we have to agree to. We have to agree to that we're going to use them, but we also have to set limits and boundaries for ourselves so that we don't use them in the wrong way. But I think it's going to be very hard because they are built to be addictive. Mm -hmm. So since they're built that way, we're going to have to try to find ways to set boundaries and workarounds that we can accept. Yeah. 
So it's like that. So then for parents with 10-year-old and 12-year-old children? Yeah. That's, you know, the, as Kempo Carter Rinpoche said uh, in general, as Kempo Carter Rinpoche said in general about uh, children, he said uh, children are, they, they, lo they love to learn. They love to learn, and that's what they're spending their childhood doing, is learning and growing and developing. And he said, while a, a young tree is growing, it needs the proper form or it won't grow properly. So he, he said the parents and adults in the child's life have to encourage good habits, because if they don't, then the child doesn't pick up those good habits, and they learn habits that aren't good. So it is up to the parent to set limits and to, and to help the children uh, to use the media wisely because these things are built to be addictive. And so what we have to do is find ways to help young people navigate that as easily as we have them navigate the problems of drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, and other th things that are addictive. That's my personal opinion. I'm not saying that, like, this is a Dharma teaching. But Kemper Rinpoche <laughs> said that it is the role of adults in a child's life. The adults in a child's life, they have to set limits. That's their job. Otherwise, they're not being true to their job, and they're not being good to their children. They're not being, they're not being who they are supposed to be, which is to help them grow properly so that they become really good people who can then raise children in a, in a positive way. So, it's like that. so I don't know if that helps, but... Uh, it helps me respond to their concerns. I understand. Yeah, no. Uh, did you have comments? Uh, something separate. Um, I, that same conversation I had with a coworker about uh -huh. anger uh, mm -hmm. that I talked about yesterday. Um, I was trying to explain the difference between Buddha or a Buddha and Bodhisattvas. Sure. And uh, and I said I know that initially I felt like you know someone reaches Buddhahood, they are enlightened and they go off, and Bodhisattvas come back to benefit. But then that sounds like the I see. Buddha went away sure. yeah, and yeah, the Bodhisattva yeah. mm -hmm. hung out. That would make the Bodhisattva working hard, which doesn't fit. Right. So if you could talk a little bit about yeah. the relationship of those two sure. terms. And yeah. I think they're really kind of interchangeable, but mm -hmm. maybe they're not. No, I, I understand the question. Uh, when we say Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, we're in general, generically, talking about beings who have reached a state of a state of awakening from this sort of sleep of ignorance mm -hmm. of, of not knowing their mind's nature, not knowing the nature of mind and the nature of things, and not knowing the nature of this self-concept as being a fiction, mm -hmm. not understanding that phenomena are experiential. Mm -hmm. hap these, these phenomena may actually be here or not. There are different schools of Buddhism that says that say that when we leave, this table disappears. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, but there are some schools of Buddhism that say it remains, but some that don't. Mm -hmm. But in any case, it is our own mind's experience. This table is my mind's experience. Mm -hmm. But if I smack my hand on it, I'll still get a bruise. Mm -hmm. That's relative versus ultimate truth. So Buddhas are, and Bodhisattvas are both beings who have achieved a certain freedom from that mm -hmm. mistake and confusion. Now... The bodhisattvas are those who have made the commitment to remain in samsara until it's emptied uh, to benefit beings and to uh, grow their own awakening. You cannot, according to the Mahayana, because if we read the introduction that Jambu Kantral the Great wrote to the, um, to the Great Path of Awakening, his uh, Mahayana mind training text or Lojong text, he lays it out very simply in his opening paragraph where he says, um, we should strive for the uh, state of perfectly perfected Buddhahood. That's what we should strive for. And then he says, there are no methods to attain, to affect this attainment. No methods to affect this attainment, meaning no methods for Buddhahood other than those that rely on the two forms of meditation, relative bodhicitta, which is meditating on love and compassion, and ultimate bodhicitta, which is resting, it says in the book, resting evenly in a non-discursive state free from conceptual elaborations. That's a big, you know. The idea is that, I know, I know. So 
So basically what he's saying, and then he quotes Nagarjuna, you know, if the rest of humanity and I wish to attain unsurpassable awakening, the basis for this is bodhicitta. So this means that, uh, that Buddhas only become Buddhas if they first generate bodhicitta. Mm-hmm. So there is this. The idea is that, Kemp, is that the bodhi, bodhisattva is working to attain awakening. And so once they uh, attain the first level of bodhisattva awakening, there are 10 levels in total, 13 if you read the Tantras, but let's not go there. <laughs> but there are 10, and what Kempo Kartarimpache said is that for all intents and purposes, a 10th level bodhisattva and a fully awakened Buddha are fairly equivalent. However, he said there are, uh, there are beings who they call um, the supreme nirmanakaya, and this supreme body of awakening is a person who appears in every eon and lives the demonstration life showing others how to practice dharma. They all are born in India. They all gain enlightenment at Bodh Gaya. They all illustrate the 12 deeds of the Buddha Shakyamuni in this world. And so those are Buddhas who have actually in previous lifetimes perfected their bodhisattva path and then lived the demonstration life. So you could say it like that. Others show themselves as Buddhas. Others show themselves as bodhisattvas depending on the needs of beings. But that's about as far as my knowledge of it goes. In order to understand such things as the five Buddha families, I'm going to need to do more reading so that I can, I can answer the question from the point of view of, mm-hmm. of wisdom, because I can't do that. I can just repeat what Rinpoche said to me. Mm-hmm. So qualitatively, the 10th level Bodhisattva and a fully enlightened Buddha, according to Rinpoche, are, they're fairly equivalent. So it's not that the Buddhas did not generate bodhicitta, because as we can see from Nagarjuna, they had to have, or they wouldn't have become Buddhas. And they didn't stop when they became No, they didn't. They didn't. They just manifested. No. In fact, fact, he also addresses that. I don't have to benefit beings anymore. I'm good. Jam and control. They just benefit. They just benefit. Yeah, right. They just benefit. Yeah, peace out. They uh, they just benefit (laughs) beings. They just benefit beings by living this demonstration life. In their in their locality or in their amp, but there are other you know ways to explain it. But what's interesting is that um, here's what here's what John Goncontrol says. Even when full Buddhahood is attained, there's nothing to do except to work for the welfare of others with non-referential compassion. Mm. So they stay busy. <laughs> then, you know, there are different philosophies of Buddha, about what happens to a Buddha when they pass away. There are, some, there are some traditions that say that they merely disappear, mm-hmm. and others say that they come back again and again. So the Mahayana uh, in general says that they come back again and again and again and manifest in all kinds of different ways. Mm-hmm. So. Sensei, what do you think? You got, you, got some, you got something in your pocket? I hate to put you on the spot, but, <laughs> but you're here. Um, well, in the... In the Zen tradition, we make much less distinction between Bodhisattva and Buddha. As a matter of fact, we tend to use Buddha for everyone who is experiencing awakening. So not only do we all have Buddha nature, we are all Buddha Mm -hmm. when we experience awakening. Right. And in the Zen tradition, we use the term Satori, Mm -hmm. which is a, it's not a state that you achieve. Mm Is an, it's a state that you experience. Mm-hmm. And you may experience it multiple times through your life. Mm-hmm. So you become Buddha many times throughout your life. Uh, bodhisattvas then become the, the guide for, for that experience. Mm-hmm. So we make much less distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also tend to emphasize the 14 unanswered questions, <laughs> and one of those was, what happens to a Buddha after death? Right. And the Buddha said, I ain't going to tell you. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not touching that one. You'll have yeah. to get there and find out for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. I, I love the whole idea of there being questions the Buddha would not answer for the 14. I, I, I think it's, and 
when you were saying uh, Kim Bakartha said uh, the power of I don't know those mm -hmm. three words. Right. I as Bob and some others my sangha will know that's a thing that I speak on fairly constantly. Is right. I don't know is an incredibly powerful right. phrase. Right. We think it's a horrible phrase in the West. Sure. But in fact, it's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And just one thing I'd like to add to emptiness mm -hmm. that I think might help people understand the Mahayana view of it uh, is using the Chinese term, which is Mu. Mm -hmm. Chinese characters are made up of, uh, many Chinese characters are made up of two radicals. Mm -hmm. One tells you how to pronounce the character, and the other gives you a guide in what it really means. Mm -hmm. The character for Mu contains the radical for sky. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when a Chinese person even sees that word, they visualize not nihilism, right. Right. but spaciousness. Spaciousness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that really helps. Mm -hmm. Has not helped in my understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really that's really good because in that way the Chinese character Mu mimics what Sitarubache is trying to accomplish by using the word limitlessness. Right. Exactly. Which it, it, it actually accomplishes the same thing because we think in 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 English terminology and English poetics we think of the limitless sky or the you know, the limitless vista and things like that. So it has the same it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That we all have to kind of use words to go beyond words. And I think that that's what is, I, I hate to use a, a, uh, this term, a, like a, it, but that's what's magical about Buddhism, is that we use what confuses us, which is thoughts and words, to go beyond thoughts and words, to experience uh, what you described as Satori. Or uh, we'll call it in the, my, in the Mahamudra tradition, we'll call it a glimpse of Mahamudra. And so the idea is that these happen drop by drop by drop by drop, and then they culminate in either at the time of death or before uh, an attainment that doesn't fluctuate, uh, a, a state of um, awakening that doesn't fluctuate. So it's, it's kind of like we're going in the same direction. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, I thank you for that, Sensei Flynn. Thank you. And, uh, and I, uh, our time is, uh, is up for this morning. Uh, but... Um, I want to say one more thing, and that is that uh, people talk, uh, we were talking yesterday about rebirth and uh, reincarnation and the whole idea. And, um, and what's interesting is that you can think of rebirth as happening uh, at the end of your life, you know, moving toward another life. But really, rebirth happens in every single moment of every single day. Yes. Every time a thought arises in our mind, and we buy into what it is telling us, and we believe what it says, we have then taken rebirth in the world of that thought. If we think I am a bad person and scowl at ourselves, then what we're doing is we're taking rebirth in the world of that thought. And then when we are able to uh, release that thought, we are then reborn in a, in a better place. <laughs> so what's very interesting is that we can begin to guide our rebirth and our becoming right now while we are still alive by continuously working with our habits, continuously examining them, seeing what's right about them, what's wrong about them, and holding true, holding to that which fast to that which is true and leaving aside that which is not worthwhile. Uh, in fact, uh, Kemper Pache's book, um, Excellent at the Beginning, when it was first written, uh, was published under the title of embracing what is genuine and discarding that which is not worthwhile. <laughs> we embrace the benefit of others and virtuous mind and we set aside that which is not worthwhile, which is the selfishness and harm. So if we can just continuously remind ourselves and refresh our, uh, our aspiration over and over again, then it will slowly happen over time. So, and Buddha nature exists, so because it exists, it's there's always hope, because there's always Buddha nature. Can't get rid of it. It's it's here forever. So that's something to uh, to keep and go with. So uh, we'll close here.
Uh, we'll sit quietly and do our dedication of merit, our dedication of goodness, uh, silently. We put away all of our prayer books, so we'll do it without prayer book. We'll sit quietly and reflect on this. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all sentient beings, especially those who are experiencing pain and suffering. We dedicate our merit to all sentient beings, praying that they are freed from suffering, that they come to happiness and then to Buddhahood and coming to awakening. May they emanate in all directions and benefit sentient beings endlessly. We mentally dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again to Sensei Glenn and the whole Sangha here. Thank you.